Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, brought to you each week on WTBN by the C.S. Lewis Society, a ministry organization based at Trinity College of Florida, which seeks to present the case for Christian faith on the university campuses in the U.S. and overseas, and in church conferences as well. We're based at Trinity College of Florida. We welcome you to come up and uh, visit the campus sometime. Maybe we can give you a tour of the library and the offices and the uh, meet some of the students and professors at Trinity College, as well as uh, see where we organize the C.S. Lewis Society. We also are brought to you each week by the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. Excellence with love is their motto, and they really make good on that motto by caring for the eye needs and health needs uh, of a for amazing variety. Uh, they're at their home office, the main office, I should say, up at Tarpon Springs on US-19. Their telephone number is 727-938-2020. Or you can reach them on the internet at stlukeseye.com. That's stlukeseye.com. We're so thankful for their support. They've been a tremendous pillar for our ministry of uh, bringing this good news on the edge, the cutting edge of, I guess you could say, evolution creation discussion. And so we're trying to cover the interaction between faith and science, between Christian truths and what we're learning from the world of science, really manifesting problems with macro evolution, the complicated big theory of uh, evolution and showing evidence for an intelligent designer that is becoming clearer as we pass through the scientific revolutions. Well, Bill Carl, thank you so much for making this program possible. On the technical side, we, uh, your skills are much, much appreciated. Thanks, Dr. Woodward. Glad to be here today and excited. You know, we have so many interesting guests on Darwin or Design, and some of them are so interesting and so engaging, we actually have them back. And I so know. That's it's the case today. We have asked to uh, return to the microphone by way of a phone call to the Atlanta area. Dr. Charles Thaxton, uh, for those of you who followed the history of the design movement, the intelligent design hypothesis, Dr. Charles Thaxton is a household word for you because he is one of the architects of the principal foundational ideas back in the mid-80s and 90s and on through the current moment in time to really show how you can detect intelligent agency and, and you know the idea of finding intelligence as a cause of things in nature is kind of a revolutionary idea, although its roots are found, of course, in Newton, the great physicist, and uh, others along the way, both before and after Newton. But we welcome, uh, again, back to Darwin or Design, Dr. Charles Thaxton. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I always enjoy being on the program and uh, visiting, visiting there in your area as well. I really, uh, really am excited about a book you're working on. I don't know if we can go ahead and uh, mention that you have been uh, speaking on this particular topic, and uh, maybe our people can just uh, sort of be anticipating that and maybe uh, lifting you up uh, in prayer as you work on it. Is that possible? 
Well, it's possible, certainly. I'd love that. Okay, uh, what's the name of the, the uh, at least a working title and the name of this uh, research talk you've given? Uh, a working title is Darwin Surprise. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working on that for quite a while. And um, it started out as a lecture I gave in Prague about, uh, about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I started giving it on the campuses here in America after I returned. And um, I've given it, I don't know how many times, 20, 30, 40 times maybe about now. Wow. And each time uh, it seems like the audiences uh, appreciate some of the points of view, and so I'm trying to write it up as a, as a, as a book, a okay. little book, not a big book, but a... Right. A typical, uh, you know, probably 150, 250 page book. Uh, I know that when we were together, it was right around the time that you were on the program, the Darwin or Design program back in May, and we were, of course, at that big conference in central Georgia. I got to hear that uh, talk, and I, of course, had heard it uh, before in the country of Hungary. And tell us, I mean, how does the name, just uh, we won't spend much more time on this, but what does the name Darwin Surprise pertain to? I'd love for you to explain that briefly. Oh, my general idea is if what if Darwin somehow miraculously came back today and saw what's going on in the world of science today, how would he respond to the developments regarding his theory? Wow. And that's basically what it is. I go through a number of, uh, a number of points, and you show his reaction to it. It's all fantasy, mm-hmm. but um, kind of mixing in with, uh, with things that have happened in the last uh, dozen years or so in the area of science that would have given him pause uh, maybe to rethink his theory. So right. that's what it's about. And, of course, I would say I, I agree that there's a, a note of fantasy bringing Charles Darwin back, letting him, as it were, crawl out of his time capsule and look around and, and read up the latest uh, biological info pertaining to evolution. But, of course, I, I'd say 90% of it, for having heard your talk twice, 90% or maybe 98% of it is based on the latest scientific evidence, which should, even though we don't know if it would, but it should give Darwin uh, quite a shock or quite a surprise. And so, oh, I, I'm, I'm sure he would be shocked to find out what's inside the cell, for example. Uh, he had no idea when he was writing his theory how, how the developments were going to happen in, in the area of the microscope Mm-hmm. To be able to reveal this a fantastic uh, molecular world and all of the machines that are there and so on, and then to think in terms of how it all works as well as where it came from would be quite a shock to him to find out. The integrated complexity of the cell really has been compared many, many times to a city or to a spaceship or to interlocking systems of automatic, automated factories controlled by a master computer. And so I don't think Darwin, uh, of course, he didn't know what computers were. He did know, of course, what machines and factories were. So he would be surprised to see cells crammed with such complexity, I guess, is what we're saying. Well, he thought everything was uh, everything was mechanical in his world. and. Mm-hmm. He knew nothing of the modern concept of information and how that works. So he would have quite a shock. He'd have a lot to learn today. Very good. Now, speaking of information, that's a perfect transition to your life's work, which is studying the arguments for and against or the evidence basis for and against the idea that a single cell could evolve 
purely by undirected processes of nature. And of course, let me remind the uh, audience uh, tuning in here on Darwin, a design that we're chatting with Dr. Charles Faxton, author of The Mystery of Life's Origin which dealt with that or origin of the first cell question uh, back in the mid-'80s and is still, I believe, in print. Uh, the uh, second major book, The Soul of Science, which I'm using right now as a textbook, and, of course, I'm teaching at Trinity College. We'll get to that in just a minute. But your life's work has been focused, I mean, at least uh, one branch of it, on the origin of the first cell. Yes, give, that's correct. Give us, give us a kind of a walkthrough in about two and a half, three minutes. Walk through the highlights of the boom of optimism, let's say, in the 50s, and then the slide into pessimism in the last 20 or so years? Oh, my goodness. Back in the 1950s, um, this was still um, the start age for uh, modern original life studies. Uh, all that there had been up until then was speculative ideas from uh, a couple of writers back in the 20s, uh, uh, Alexander Oparin from Russia, mm-hmm. and J.B.S. Haldane from England, and uh, a few others had chimed in with some help, but they gave ideas about how to make life, but they, were, they had never been put to the test. In the early 50s, uh, graduate student Stanley Miller at the University of Chicago went to his professor and said, I would like to do that experiment. So that was his Ph.D. work, and he did the experiment that many high schoolers have done in their own uh, high school biology classes, had a little flask and put some gases in it that didn't have oxygen gas in it, and sparked it, and what do you know? He made, after a few days, a couple of amino acids. And this was the very primitive beginning of modern experimental studies for the origin of life. And since then, it, it, during the 60s, leading up to the um, the the uh, uh, the trip to uh, to the moon and and also and then eventually to Mars. This was the heyday of modern origin of life uh, studies because there was great optimism that we are going to know how to make life just by putting these simple chemicals together that we are making by uh, these um, normal chemical processes in a in a laboratory without the help of intelligence. And that was the grand goal, of course, is to uh, mix all the chemicals together and make living things without the intelligent investigator. Okay, and so that was all in the early stages, 1953, I guess Miller's results were published. Uh, and, of course, those amino acids, let me just point out, if, uh, if as a kind of refresher for basic uh, life chemistry, biochemistry, amino acids are like the beads that are strung together to form what we call a protein. So think of beads strung together on a string. Of course, they're, they're joined by peptide bonds, so there's no string involved. But those beads are actually chemical letters, and I believe uh, in normal living things, there's about 20 of them, correct? That's correct, but of course that all had to be worked out. It was not known mm-hmm. in, um, in 1953 when Miller did the experiment. Okay. So all these ideas, initial ideas, gave a rush of excitement and of, a, you might say, an intellectual adrenaline flowed into the origin of life, this tiny community devoted to zapping raw chemicals, uh, let's say swirling gases inside that tube, hitting it with a little primitive simulated lightning strike, just a, a, a spark really, and then through producing amino acids, the hope was that these amino acids would link together and form chains, protein chains, which then would come together in some 
uh, undirected way and eventually lead to the first cell. So I'm since we're almost out of time in this segment, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Charles Thaxton, to lead us into that period of shock or surprise that the living, uh, that the scientists working on how you get to a living form uh, experienced after, let's say, the mid-60s or beyond. So if you could just lead us into that discussion, we'd love that. Looking forward to it. Back with more in just a moment on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We're very, very excited about having Dr. Charles Thaxton on our program today. Dr. Thaxton, who is a resident of the great state of Georgia, is coming to us uh, by phone hookup. And he is talking about the origin of life issue, which he wrote about in a very pivotal, very foundational book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, The Mystery of Life's Origin. He co-authored that book with uh, Walter Bradley and Roger Olson, and that book was one of the bombshell books that helped to jar up, jar scientists studying the topic of origin of life, and really, in a, in a major way, set up for the birth of the design hypothesis in the late 80s and beyond. So, Dr. Charles Thaxon, we were talking about the problems that began to crop up, that began to appear on the scene, let's say in the mid-60s and beyond. If you could enumerate just two or three or so of the major things that sent, you know, the origin of life field into kind of a depression. Well, uh, the the initial idea was to just mix the chemicals uh, and um, eventually uh, random processes of chemistry would would bring about the complex cell, but it turns out as soon as as Miller had published his own work, people were already abuzz with a new idea, something new, and that is that inside the cell also is DNA, hmm. and it was an idea of its structure, the whole hereditary double helical structure that Crick and Watson published, and then the question was, uh, soon after, it began to be realized that there's actually a code operating inside the cell connecting the... Uh, um, the uh, nucleotide sequences um, of the DNA with the amino acid sequences in a protein to make a protein. So it soon became aware that there was a code operating, and it wasn't just chemistry going on inside that flask. There was another directing mechanism at work, which also had to be explained. Mm. And this was the major jarring new effect. However, momentum was such and uh, that it... Uh, the inertia was set up already to do the laboratory chemical experiments, and it took another 20, 25 years for the chemistry to finally uh, uh, come around to try to put the two things together. And I would say since the 1990s, it's become aware that we're, the whole game is transformed, and now everything is trying to explain where does the information come from and how does it get linked up inside the cell. Okay. In other words, the DNA and, of course, the copy of DNA carried uh, from the nucleus outward to the uh, reading machine, the ribosome, those DNA and RNA uh, molecules carry digits. They carry chemical information in, like, digital form. Is that a fair statement? That's true. But, uh, of course, also during that whole period was trying to understand, well, what do we mean by information? There's a, a host of different interpretations and 
designations, and there was a lot of confusion in the world of science and biology about this, because information as it was developed and worked out by information theory seemed to be quite different from what was actually required in the world of biology. It turns out that what is needed in the world of biology is precisely what we understand when we talk about information on an everyday sense of putting, putting uh, letter sequences in the proper arrangement to communicate a message. And this is precisely what happens inside the cell. The nucleotides have to be in the proper arrangement to convey the message or the, or the signal to the cell to make the amino acid sequences of a protein. And it's this precise connection that is uh, different from just information theory, which uh, knows nothing about messages. It doesn't care anything about that. Uh, it was all a communication theory uh, useful to, for the development of the modern computer and uh, technology and so on, but didn't have a specific application at first, it seemed, to the world of biology. So we had to learn how to translate back and forth using the word information and really understand what does it mean in terms of the cell. Okay, now we keep hearing in design theory circles, people that work on the theory of intelligent design, a phrase called specified complexity or complex specified information, CSI. I talk about this in Chapter 10 of my own book called Darwin Strikes Back. I wondered if you could explain is, or to, or to help clarify, is information within the digital system of the cell, is that specified complexity or complex specified information? Yes, it is. Okay. And so, therefore, then we have a, a myriad, let's say a typical genome of a, of a mammal is over 3 billion digits in a single, let's say, nucleus, which would be like a hard drive of a computer. Then we're talking about literally there are 3 billion letter pairs along that spiral, that helix, double helix structure of the DNA. Is that correct? That's correct. So then... For a human. Of a human. Of course, a cell, maybe uh, there's 4,000 genes in E. coli, maybe 1,000 genes in some very primitive um, bacteria. That's still lots of information. That's hundreds of thousands of letters, correct? Yes, that is absolutely correct. So how does a typical, let's say, um, origin of life researcher, if you were to, if you know, you have your degree, your Ph.D. in chemistry, you know, postdoc at Harvard, postdoc at Brandeis, elite universities, if you, with those credentials, walked in and asked a professor who did this research... Where is all this information coming from, this vast database? Where is it coming from? What would they say? Well, you mean now or back in the 60s and 70s? Okay, well, uh, either one. Either one or both. Well, back in the 60s and 70s, they would basically say, well, that's a problem we'll get to later. Let's learn to do, let's learn to do the chemistry first. Because back in those days, uh, people really didn't see the connection and see that it was all really a one, one game, uh, that they wanted to do the thought they could do the chemical part first and then solve that other problem, but it didn't turn out to be that way. It's all it's all part of it together. And well, did and didn't Dean Kenyon, the researcher that changed his mind, um, originally think that just the forces and the laws of chemistry would explain that sequence? Well, yes, that was one of the one of the things that uh, was caught was actually a barrier to the real understanding of what had to be done. Hmm was that people thought that there were these various really chemical processes that would bring about the development of information. And then, and then what happened to, to change his mind? Uh, well, he, um, he began to run into more and more uh, complex issues, problems that he couldn't explain chemically. Mm. And, um, and then he had to take a few steps back and re-examine and reanalyze things, and, and eventually he... 
uh, came to the conclusion that uh, uh, he was on the wrong track. And if I recall, in your own book, uh, The Mystery of Life's Origin, your co-author, Charles, uh, excuse me, uh, Walter Bradley, uh, did some research at NASA Ames Research Center, and which kind of corroborated that, namely that physical or chemical forces won't do the trick of lining up these uh, letters in a, in a meaningful sequence. That is right. So then we're dealing with data or experimental research and the data that comes from that research really kind of putting pressure on these guys. How? What has the situation been in the last, let's say, 9 or 10, 15 years? Well, increasingly, um, the laboratory work continues, of course. Mm-hmm. But because you can only publish things that work, you don't publish failures. Huh. Um, more and more, as the chemistry it gets more complicated and really less realistic, that is, less plausible, um, it becomes more and more Rube Goldberg-like. Uh, the, some of the finest chemists who, in the area of the origin of life, uh, their research publications, if you read the fine print, mm-hmm. it is really uh, not plausible for an earlier scenario. And um, you go to some of these international origin of life meetings, and um, and the chemists know that, and very often our problem is we get we can't get the chemists and the and the um, and the biologists all at the same table for discussions on these matters. Wow, um, they tend to separate themselves. So the chemists know the problems, and often the biologists um, are, come along later, and but have to but they're going to have to deal with it eventually. Now, at this point, I, I gather that there was a kind of a rescue attempt that, uh, you know, or a new idea that, that kind of dawned in the late 80s, early 90s, called the RNA world, where these RNA, the kind of the half ladder, they're like DNA, but cut in half uh, along the spine. The RNA uh, supposedly could have both information-carrying ability and could act a little bit, at least in, in some t- occasions, like an enzyme that is like a functional protein so it's like two for one but then the rna world which i i understand kind of hit the maximum excitement in the early 90s began to hit bumpy roads what's what's the latest or at least what is your perception of the view of rna world well the rna world was it was a great idea i mean it did solve the proverbial chicken and egg problem (laughs) by having a single molecule serve as both the carrier of the information and the uh the enzyme to to make it happen make it all work okay but in reality you still have the same difficulty inside the flask of how do you make this how do you make the components of rna for example and that is the two chief ones are ribose, a sugar, and adenine, which is one of the one of the uh, the nucleotide uh, uh, components for the, for a nucleotide. Okay. And uh, the chemical uh, chemical realities are such that no one figured out a plausible way to make either one of them. And even if you could get the building blocks manufactured in a raw environment, you have the problem of organizing them in the informational sequence. Isn't that right? Well, that is the, that is the case. That became that became what is known as the holy grail of origin of life studies, as how to produce the information or the sequencing. Uh, a lot, they feel like a lot of the basic chemicals, components, mm-hmm. they can figure out plausible ways to make those. Although, if your people read my book, uh, read our book, they'll realize that there are there are severe challenges in that area as well. But given that. It's the next step, the problem of 
putting these things together. As some have said, we can make the components of the bricks, but making the cathedral is the big problem. Wow. So bricks are easier to explain than cathedrals, which take a lot of intelligence to put them together. And by the way, my own, uh, if I can do a shameless plug here, my own book, Darwin Strikes Back, has two chapters on the origin of life. Uh, Darwin Strikes Back, available on the Internet, and of course through our own apologetics.org bookstore. Uh, Dr. Charles Saxon will be staying with us for another couple segments. You're listening to Darwin or Design. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We are having a lot of fun today talking with one of my mentors, one of the scientists, a chemist uh, based now in the Atlanta Georgia area. His name is Dr. Charles Thaxton, and he has been a guide, an inspiration, a tutor and teacher of me. Um, any any mistakes I commit are my own. Any brilliance I show is derivative from Dr. Charles Thaxton. Uh, I am so delighted to have him on the phone with us today. He is the author of two bombshell great, great books. They are the origin. The Origin of Life book is called The Mystery of Life's Origin. And it has a foreword by Dean Kenyon. Some of you have seen the the story of Dean Kenyon on the video documentary Unlocking the Mystery of Life. His second book is called The Soul of Science. The Soul of Science. And, of course, Dr. Charles Thaxton has contributed uh, chapters to many other books, including The Creation Hypothesis, uh, Signs of Intelligence, and many others. But we do want to go back and zero in on some of the things that uh, Dr. Thaxton, you were bringing out here. Oh, by the way, I should just mention, thank you, quick thank you to the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute for making this broadcast possible. Uh, it is a great, great privilege to be related to and uh, having the tremendous support of Dr. Tr- uh, James P. Gills, uh, Dr. Pitt Gills, and the whole wonderful staff who bring eye care to a new level of excellence with love. You can get on uh, the Internet, check them out at stlukeseye.com, all the latest information and their other locations in the central uh, Tampa area, central uh, Florida area, I should say. And then the also the telephone number is 727-938-2020. Dr. Charles Thaxton has written this book, The Soul of Science, which is like a sort of like a history of science book, but it also analyzes the philosophy, the, the hidden foundations that many of the founders of science and even current scientists have worked with, have based their work on, and are just sort of out of sight, buried in the soil. These philosophical ideas are often not brought out. But Dr. Charles Thaxton and his co-author Nancy Piercy brought these out in a very wonderful and clear way. Uh, chapter 10 in that book it deals with this issue that we're dealing with already, the code, the chemical code that is at the root of life. And uh, Dr. Charles Thaxton, if you could tell us a little bit about what you tried to emphasize in in that code and how how did you get into the idea that, wow, science can really consider an intelligent source for a code? Well, the... Um Back when I was a graduate student uh, at Iowa State, mm-hmm. um, I was perhaps um, halfway through the Ph.D. program when 
someone brought to me an issue of Chemical Engineering News Magazine, the latest one. It turned out to be a famous issue. Uh, looking back, it was the issue that had uh, an article by Michael Polanyi in it called Life Transcending Chemistry and Physics. It was the lead article or feature article in that issue, and it caused much debate, not only in our chemical uh, laboratory, but around the world, because it said, basically, uh, Mr. Crick, uh, you have given us DNA, and you say that everything is now chemistry, and I am going to show you in this article that it is not just chemistry, that there is something that transcends chemistry and physics that's involved. And what he was talking about was, of course, information, which he claimed could not be reduced to the processes of chemistry and physics. And uh, that's where I, I think I entered when, when he wrote that paper, because um, it certainly uh, gave me something to focus on and think about uh, in terms of what did he actually mean. There were a lot of provocative things in that article, but I wanted to know how it could be fleshed out and how it related to the subject of the origin of life itself. Now, when you were teaching, you were lecturing for the great Francis Schaeffer, the Christian apologist, philosopher, tutor of uh, young philosophers and thinkers from around the world up there in his chalet in Switzerland. When you were lecturing with Francis Schaeffer, were you already thinking through this possibility of... Well, uh, well of... actually, not really. Uh, I was only beginning. Okay. In fact, this was before I went to Harvard. Okay. Uh, this was just um, after I had finished my PhD, mm-hmm. and um, I had begun to think about it. In fact, I took uh, Dean Kenyon's book with me. He wrote a book called um, um, Biochemical. Biochemical Predestination. Mm-hmm. That title rather jumped out at me when I got it off the bookshelf, a bookstore. By the way, it has I nothing it to do with... It... backpack. It took it to Switzerland with me. It read through that, and uh, that's where I began. That plus the Pilates article began to think about it. But it wasn't after until after I left Switzerland and came back to the States and went to Harvard and then to Brandeis that I really focused and get into the origin of life area. And from that original thinking came your first big book, The the Mystery of Life's Origin. That's correct. Okay, and of course, working with a uh, material scientist and thermodynamicist, Walter Bradley, and the geochemist, Roger Olson, a great trio, I might add, uh, put together this book that really, with along with uh, Michael Denton's book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, very clearly sparked the intelligent design theory into existence. We, I heard you lecture on the Princeton campus. I believe we brought you there in the fall of 88. And at that point, you were basically presenting a lecture called In Pursuit of Intelligent Causes. That's right. And, uh, and I remember that paper. I probably read it 50 times. Uh, I was so excited about that paper. And I remember Freeman Dyson, the famous physicist, sitting in the audience. He was right in the row in front of me. And I remember uh, afterwards he came up, I think he may have had a word with me and word with you perhaps, and I was struck with how even the students at Princeton seemed to not even think of the possibility of uh, the explanatory power of an intelligent cause. Well, it was very new to to everyone at that point. In fact, uh, for um, I, I gave my first presentation where I began to explore the notion about an intelligence uh, in being involved at, at an American Chemical Society sectional meeting in Dallas a couple of years before that, and um, and then I began to 
gradually get my feet wet and uh, tip my toe into the waters because uh, it was heresy. Believe me, I mean, if you think it's heresy now to talk about intelligent cause being able to do something in the world of science, think about it back in the late 60s, early 70s. Wow. And uh, that's what I was beginning to, to, uh, to figure out, is how to present the case that you could go into an audience like at Princeton and, uh, and at least command their respect and attention to consider what I was talking about. That was the, that was the goal in those days, not to necessarily persuade them all over, but to let them see that a case could be made and it's worthy of being uh, thought about and um, some debate over. And I've heard a lot of commentary on design, uh, very respectful, very pro-commentary on design from a non-Christian, or at least he describes himself as a secular humanist, a professor in England, Steve Fuller. And Steve Fuller has recently, in England and other places around the world, been giving a lecture called Giving Darwin a Decent Burial. And Steve Fuller, no friend of, uh, let's say, the, the, the Christian movement per se, since he's not a Christian, has said that Newton himself embraced the idea of a design uh, or of, of a designer, and therefore you could even trace intelligent design to Newton. Do you think that's valid? Oh, well, certainly. Of course, uh, uh it was design was in the air during the time of Newton and and even before. I mean, it's the whole notion is not new; it, it's ancient. The Stoics had a view of of design, hmm. but uh, what Newton added was uh, was the whole idea of building a model, and and it was clear that the model of the universe that he would build was had a designer, and he wanted to extend that to say, look, if you and insist that the uh, that this model of the universe needs a designer, well, and how much does the whole universe itself need a designer? Hmm. So he was using that kind of uh, uh, kind of argument even back then, but he was not thinking in terms of biology. It was the total physical system of the universe. Right. And, of course, I love, I absolutely am wildly crazy about the opening chapter of your book, Soul of Science, because it tackles this whole issue of, of the supposed war in uh, in a minute, minute and a half, would you say that the war metaphor, that is, Christianity has always been at war with science, is that a poorly supported idea? Well, more and more scientists uh, and more and more philosophers, more and more historians are recognizing that um, that the warfare metaphor is totally uh, false. Mm. That, uh, that for, during the whole time of the development of modern science, science and and uh, Christian faith particularly, were, were friends of each other. It wasn't until after science was well-developed that the developments from within science combined with a more naturalistic philosophy began to antagonize uh, and, and create this rift between science and, and, uh, and Christian belief and so on. But not at first. They were very much allies. So it was the Christian worldview, the Christian system of an intelligent, rational creator who made an intelligible and understandable creation that, in effect, kick-started or gave rise to science? Well, that is correct. Uh, it, it, it was, uh, it, I would not go so far as to say that Christianity produced science, mm-hmm. although there have been those that have tried to make that claim. Mm-hmm. But the point I would want to make, and that we tried to make uh, in, in our book, The Soul of Science, was that the Christian frame of reference or thinking was absolutely uh, a historical uh, fact that that formed the frame of thinking from which 
science developed. I love I love the way you put it in chapter one. Christianity was not a menace; it was a midwife to science. That's right. I love that wording. I actually said to my students two weeks ago, I said, "You need to memorize that sentence." <laughs> Christianity was not a menace; it was a midwife to science. Well, we've had a, a fantastic discussion on a wide uh, series of topics, wide ranging series of questions with Dr. Charles Thaxton. He has agreed, uh, Dr. Thaxton, a chemist, author of Soul of Science and the Mystery of Life's Origin, co-founder of Design Theory in the 80s and 90s and all the way through today, is going to stay with us for one more segment. We have the best for last, save for last. Stay with us on Darwin or Design. We'll be right back. Darwin or Design on AM 570 WTBN is sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and through the vision of the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We're on the phone today with Dr. Charles Thaxton up in the Atlanta, Georgia area today. He is the author of two key books that you want to get for your library. I guarantee you these are important foundational books. I know that the soul of science is in print because I'm using it as a textbook, and my students ordered it through the Internet uh, or from other sources. You can also uh, try to track down the mystery of life's origin. Dr. Charles Thaxton, welcome back. And tell us, is are both of those books in print? I know Soul of Science. Uh, Soul of Science is, uh, I think if you go on um, if you go on the internet to try to find it, um, I, I've even seen it cost over a hundred dollars in some places. Wow! Because it's uh, it, it's kind of hard to find. It's out of print. The mystery However, of life. I think origin, I have yeah. the last uh, supply of maybe a hundred books or so here okay. Okay, in my so- house. And I know, Bill, that you have that information through which people can can get the book. That's right. You can drop Dr. Thaxton a line, P.O. Box 142099, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30214. Again, that's P.O. Box 142099, Fayetteville, Georgia, 30214. And, of course, uh, if you want to cat, uh, get back in touch with us at apologetics.org, just write us there, and we'll get that information to you, the address for Dr. Charles Thaxton to get the uh, those precious remaining copies of uh, The Mystery of Life's Origin. I believe it's also available on the Internet as uh, a complete digital um, copy that you could read the book. Now... We're back in the saddle with the key information that has just come out this past week, just in the, in the last, let's say, two weeks, uh, as of the airing of this program, uh, the 18 September 2008 edition of Nature, the leading journal, science journal in the world, has finally reported on a very, very controversial meeting that took place this summer in Austria, near Vienna, Austria. I have talked about this renegade or revolutionary radical group called the OOFers. Now, OOF, O-O-F, is kind of a humorous acronym based on the book that they published oh, about five years ago through MIT Press. O-O-F it stands for Origination of Organismal Form. It's co-edited, that is, two of these 10 or 15 scientists at the time that that book came out were the ringleaders. They are Stuart Newman, a cell biologist up in New York State, and Gerd Müller. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that uh, German name right. But uh, Müller and Newman are the co-editors of the book, 
origination of organismal form. Then this spring, the news came out that 16 scholars were going to meet in this very, very important confab, this this conference in Austria to discuss the directions, the new directions for evolutionary theory, because the old theory isn't cutting it. The old neo-Darwinian, what they call the synthesis, or the neo-Darwinian paradigm, is really running into massive problems in explaining the origin of new body form, because the gene-centered, focus on snippets of DNA or genes, that gene-centered theory, which Richard Dawkins loves so much, is really sick. I mean, it is on its final legs, according to these new theorists. But, now, here's the key. They are not intelligent design advocates. They are not moving over to what Charles Saxon would call as the design paradigm. And so let me just read a couple of key quotes uh, from this uh, article and and just kind of get reactions from Dr. Thaxon. Uh, he, uh, let me just re- bring this out. I know this is uh, so new that I, I think Charles Saxon will be checking into this this week as, as well. But it says, what's wrong with the current picture? The picture that, uh, that genes are really doing it all. The, the, what's wrong with this current picture uh, is what it leaves out. So this group at Altenburg, the city in Austria where they met, tackled what evolution leaves out. And then it says in this article in Nature, molecular biology, cell biology, and genomics have provided a much richer picture of how genotypes make phenotypes. That means how the DNA library makes the body. Okay, genotype, DNA, phenotype, the body. I'm looking across the desk at a beautiful uh, G, uh, phenotype. Uh, Bill Carl, you have a, a why? Thank you, Doctor. You have a handsome phenotype, and I know there must be a really terrific genotype that uh, that uh, set up. The, the, I, I do have a wonderful genotype. <laughs> Several have remarked, <laughs> and I know Doctor Thaxton has a tremendous genotype. Very, uh, very great programming in his DNA, and has produced a handsome and rather brilliant phenotype. Uh, uh, that's enough of our humor here. So it says here the extenders. Extenders is the people that met in this kind of revolutionary meeting. The extenders claim that enough insights have now come from this and other research for it to be time to re-examine problems that the modern synthesis does not address. These problems include some of the key turning points in evolution, the patterns and changes seen in the fossil record as new branches spring from the tree of life and new anatomies come into being. Quote, when the public thinks about evolution... They think about the origin of wings and the invasion of the land, close quote, says Graham Budd, a paleobiologist at the University of Uppsala, Sweden, quote, but these are things that evolutionary theory has told us little about. Wow. Dr. Charles Thaxton, um, I know this is kind of uh, new news, not, not totally new, but this article is, is fairly new. Uh, do you get the idea that just as at the base of life, the origin of life, which is the issue you focused on, which deals with the origin of information, that we're having maybe a parallel problem further up in this supposed tree of life where new increments of of information have to come from somewhere. Well, that is correct, because um, the the information problem is going to have to reverberate throughout the whole uh, a phylogenetic tree. There has to be at every branch, there has to be an injection of new information from someplace. 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't get the additional forms and structures. And that's what that conference apparently was talking about, although I haven't seen the article. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that this is uh, where the pressure point is in modern biology. Well, I mean, Gilbert, uh, who is not who was not at the meeting, Scott Gilbert, I've actually had uh, correspondence with him. He's at the uh, very elite um, Philadelphia school called Swarthmore College. And it says here, quote, evolution needs... Uh, this, is, this is really interesting wording. I mean, catch this. Everybody, okay, perk up your, put on your thinking caps and your listening caps, listen to this. Evolution needs a theory of body construction and change, as well as population construction and change, uh, says Scott Gilbert, an Evo Devo uh, researcher. By the way, Evo Devo is the shorthand for evolutionary developmental uh, biology. It's a it's a new field, uh, which links those two together. An Evo Devo researcher at Swarthmore in Pennsylvania, who was not at Altenburg, he says, the modern synthesis is remarkably good at modeling the survival of the fittest, but not good at modeling the arrival of the fittest. Now that, to me, is a remarkable admission. Would you agree, Dr. Charles Thaxton? Well, yes. It's been, this has been the this has been one of the major uh, critical um, criticisms of, uh, of Darwinian thought from the very beginning, hmm. is that it does account for um, a lot of problems, a lot of things, but does not account for the arrival of the fittest. Okay, even like, I think, um, <clears throat> Mivar, M-I-V-A-R-T, the French Darwinist in the late 1800s, was corresponding with Darwin himself, and pointing out how the evolution of, let's say, a wing is hard to explain because you don't, you don't get the function, the beautiful flight function of a wing, until it's pretty much complete. And so the, the starting or the incipient stages to develop a wing are really much more difficult to explain. At least I, I see a parallel here. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Of course, one of the standard arguments, and this is, this is some, I don't know if they brought this out at the conference or not, mm-hmm. But one of the standard assumptions that's been made along here, especially since DNA entered this, the subject matter, is that somehow that information for making the wing and the, or the or leg or whatever, the form, uh, the structure, must be in the DNA. But one of the questions, that, I mean, one of the issues that's cropped up in the whole uh, envir- um, uh, evolutionary development discussion is whether or not the DNA does, in fact, carry all that information. It's there someplace, but where is it? Well, when you say, where is it, which the uh, I know you and I have talked about before, this raises the whole very surprising new theory that maybe the information is not all in the DNA, that maybe it is floating out there in the uh, environment of, a let's say, an embryonic cell outside the nucleic capsule in other spaces, in other spaces or epigenetic nooks and crannies of the cell. I guess that's a possibility, right? Uh, yes, it is a possibility. Well, what I want to do in the, in the close here, because we, we just got a few minutes left, is to say that we are in the midst of a scientific revolution. And I know that we have on the phone with us one of the founders of this new exciting mode of thought, this new way of thinking, a new paradigm, uh, which has really shaken the ground underneath biological science and is continuing to shed new light on old problems. And I want to thank you, Dr. Charles Thaxton, persisting through a ton of 
inflammatory, harsh, ferocious rhetoric that has been directed against you and your colleagues. I thank you for persisting toward the goal of truth. Well, that is the goal, is truth, and um, I think everybody would want it. It's just that we all persist in wanting it our way, and sometimes it doesn't work out that way. We have to um, sometimes go through the bad times to reach the final goal, and I'm sure it will look like something different than any of us can conceive at the moment. Right. Well, uh, my hat's uh, my hat is off to you. My kudos and congratulations go to you for what you've achieved. You've set in motion a revolution. I know you're still very much involved in it. Thanks a lot for joining us on this particular program of Darwin or Design. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Well, that was a great uh, kind of a review of some of the most important hot issues. And Dr. Bill Carl on the other yes. side, <laughs> I, yes. I, it, it reflected, I was reflecting on how much we have yet to go in educating the public on just these areas that people are totally unaware of, the revolution that are just represented by this group that met in Austria, the revolution in the news that cellular machinery is far more complex, far more inter, um, information rich than they ever imagined. And I think this program is at least helping with that, don't you think? Oh, no question. I think as you, know, have, as you have stated, putting the cookies on a shelf where everybody can reach them, the, the problem that uh, is the kind of the fly in the ointment for all of these folks is uh, the continuing question that we always bring up is, where did it all come from? And I love the way the one gentleman says, uh, the problem isn't explaining the, sur- the survival of the fittest, it's explaining the arrival of the fittest. And this continues to be the the problem that tears uh, Darwinism down to its foundations. Exactly, because it. because the, the fittest, in this case, is not just an, an interesting shape, you know, or a little, let's say, um, a pool of something. This is like a computer. A the, sentient being. A sentient being which can respond to the environment, and at the highest level, man can even interact intelligently with gracious thanksgiving, apprehension, uh, comprehension, and worship to the Creator. And this is where I think that, I mean, all of these discoveries are gifts from a good God. The discoveries of science are gifts. God himself has given the gift of science itself. Even what Charles Thaxton has done, the research that he's done, has been a gift to me. And, of course, the ultimate gift that God offers to mankind is the gift not just of science or knowledge, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of a way back from this damaged um, relationship or a broken relationship, really, that our sin has caused. And so the best news of all is that the science, which literally, literally means knowledge, the word science means knowledge, that the best science of all, the best knowledge of all is the knowledge of a God who reached down to us in the person of Christ, who took our sins, Christ did, on the cross, who paid for them, who rose again, and reaches out to us with the knowledge of himself and a personal relationship. And that knowledge, that science, the science of Christ, literally, is the most, it's the highest level of knowledge that we could ever have. Well, thank you for joining us on Darwin or Design. We'll be back with you next week with another set of cutting-edge discussions on this key issue. 